This morning we're continuing our study in the book of Esther. If you could turn with me to Esther chapter 6, that's where we'll be this morning. Esther chapter 6, and if this is your first week with us, we'd like to welcome you for, thank you for joining us this morning, and we've been going through a a study through the entire book of Esther. Um, We're calling it Seeing the Unseen, as we look at a book that although God's name is not clearly stated within it, his hand is clearly at work in each and every page. And if you were with us last week, you saw that stage beginning to be set where the Lord was going to shift everything within the book of Esther. There was this hinge that was happening where, where the Lord's beginning to set the stage and it seemed like it got to the absolute worst and yet we saw that even in that problem, there was an opportunity where God was going to work on behalf of his people. And it brings us up to chapter 6 this morning where understanding the context, Haman was unsatisfied with this wicked decree he's already sent out that all the Jews would be killed. He needed to one-up it because of one man, Mordecai, who did not give him his honor and respect that he so desired in his place of authority. And so his wife and his friends, they all come together and they conspire and they conclude, you need to go to the king and you need to have him build this gallows and you need to ask him to have have. Mordecai hung on that gallows before you even go to your second banquet tomorrow night. And it pleased him, and he's, he's well satisfied with that idea. And so he's determined it. He's had the gallows made. And before he goes to the king, we pick up in chapter 6, and we read, That night the king could not sleep. So one was commanded to bring the book of the records of the chronicles, and they were read before the king. And it was found written that Mordecai had told of Bichthana and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs, the doorkeepers who had sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. Then the king said, What honor or dignity has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? And the king's servants who attended him said, Nothing has been done for him. So the king said, Who is in the court? Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the king's palace to suggest that the king hang Mordecai on the gallows that he had prepared for him. And the king's servants said to him, Haman is there standing in the court. And the king said, let him come in. So Haman came in and the king asked him, what shall be done for the man whom the king delights to honor? Now Haman thought in his heart, whom would the king delight to honor more than me? And Haman answered the king, For the man whom the king delights to honor, let a royal robe be brought, which the king has worn, and a horse on which the king has ridden, which has a royal crest placed on its head. Then let this robe and horse be delivered to the hand of the one of the king's most noble princes, that he may array the man whom the king delights to honor. Then parade him on horseback through the city square and proclaim before him, thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. And then the king said to Haman, hurry, take the robe and the horse as you have suggested and do so for Mordecai the Jew who sits within the king's gate. Leave nothing undone of all that you have spoken. So Haman took the robe And the horse arrayed Mordecai and led him on horseback through the city square. 
and proclaimed before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Afterward, Mordecai went back to the king's gate. But Haman hurried to his house, mourning and with his head covered. When Haman told his wife Zeresh and all his friends everything that had happened to him, his wise men and his wife Zeresh said to him, If Mordecai, before, before whom you have begun to fall, is of Jewish descent, you will not prevail against him, but will surely fall before him. And while they were still talking to him, the king's eunuchs came and hastened to bring Haman to the banquet which Esther had prepared. Let's pray this morning as we begin our study of God's word. Well, Heavenly Father, as we approach your word this morning, we do so recognizing that although the people we read about, the time in which they lived, and the words on the page don't, don't clearly proclaim your name that you are at work. Lord, it reminds us that even this morning as we came here to church that although we may not clearly see what you are doing, you are still at work. And God, we pray as we look at this text this morning and see the, the rise of one man and the fall of another man that, that we'd be reminded that it is you who chooses who will rise and who will fall, that it is you who exalts one and brings down another, and that it would be you that we seek to honor and live for with our lives. We thank you for the freedom we have to approach your word this morning and gather together as your people. Would you bless this time? Would you speak to us, we pray. And it's in your name, Jesus. Amen. If you want to write down a title for this morning's uh, message through Esther chapter 6, you can write this down. What goes up must come down. What goes up must come down. Now, it's a common phrase you've heard before. It originated in the 1800s. It came from the physical properties of gravity, right? We understand if you throw something up that it would come back down. But we also use it in a metaphorical way, describing things like prices or power or even people at times that although they may rise in a moment, we know that what goes up must come down. And the opposite is true as well. One of my least favorite things when I go for a run is running downhill. And do you want to know why? Because every time I start running downhill with guys, I tell them, you know what goes down must come up. And no matter how nice this downhill is, I know what's awaiting me at some point. I'm going to have to climb back up that hill to get where I started. Well, today in our text, we're going to see two men. Mordecai and Haman, one who through the first five chapters has been low, has been overseen, has been unappreciated, and one who has been greatly lifted high and honored and respected and given power and authority, and yet, as we see in this chapter and the rest of the book moving forward, what went up has now come down, and what was down has now been brought up. And not by coincidence, 
Not because of the law of gravity. No, as believers, we understand we're dealing with more than economics, ethics, and physics when we talk about this rise and fall of these men. We have to remember a greater law than the law of gravity, and that is the law of the Lord. That states to us in Psalm 75, verses 6 and 7, For exaltation comes neither from the east, nor from the west, nor from the south, but God is the judge. He puts down one and exalts another. It is the Lord, the one in control truly, who as he sees fit, as pleases him and is according to his will, will raise one up and will bring down another. In fact, when he was speaking to his disciples who needed this lesson more than we know, in Luke 14, he said this, he told a parable to those who were invited when he noted how they chose the best places, saying to them, when you are invited by anyone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in the best place, lest one more honorable than you be invited by him. And he who invited you and him come and say to you, give place to this man. And then you begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and sit down in the lowest place, so that when he who invited you comes, he may say to you, friend, go up higher. For whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. You see, I love what this parable does because it doesn't only explain the principle of how God works, but it also gives to us the instruction of how we are to respond to that. Understanding that it's the Lord who so chooses to lift one up and bring down another, don't you so foolishly run to the place of honor and think that you belong there. Allow the Lord to bring you to that place. Place yourself in the humble seat. Lower yourself before the Lord. Choose the place of humility. This was a constant lesson that Jesus was explaining to a group of disciples who loved to get in an argument about who was the greatest. A group of disciples with whom a few were even guilty of having their mom try and come to Jesus and soften him up a little. Hey, can you have my boys sit at your left hand and your right hand? Now, it's, a, it's an age-old struggle we've all had, always wanting to be on the top always wanting the recognition, always wanting to lift ourselves up. But the reminder he brought to those disciples that day is the same reminder we need this morning. And it's a reality we see in our text. Humble yourself before the Lord and he will lift you up. Today we get two real life examples of that played out before us. Through the work of God within this chapter, these men are going to flip. There's a total reversal of their circumstances. Mordecai, from humility and even desperation, we see mourning and sackcloth and ashes going unnoticed even when he performs a righteous act that spares the king's life. But it's going to flip and bring him to a place of honor and favor and recognition this morning. 
The other, Haman, is going to go from a place of pride and power and recognition where he is gathering all his friends and family just to tell them how blessed he is of all the riches and children he has and of the special honor he's been given to be invited to a banquet with the queen and the king. And yet in this chapter, we will see the beginning of this shift where his life is beginning to turn towards a life of shame, humility, and ultimately destruction. But as we look at the circumstances that set the stage for that, as we see these, these moments within the life of King Ahasuerus that move this plan into motion, we have to talk about something this morning, and it's this Christian cuss word, this five-letter, excuse me, six-letter Christian cuss word called chance. May it never be a word used within our homes and in our communities. Chance. Oh, this crazy thing happened in my life. It was just just by chance. Oh, you wouldn't believe what happened. This conversation, this opportunity, this moment, this time and place. I guess it was just another terrible word. Luck. It was just luck. Man, I'm just really lucky person. I don't know. The odds were not in my favor, but by some chance, it worked out. Now, the Christian doesn't abide by these words because we understand nothing happens without God's consent and control. Now, this doesn't mean that after church, if you go into the gym and you make a backwards shot at the hoop and you make it, this is God trying to tell you you need to join the NBA. We are, not ta- we are talking here this morning about the guidance and circumstances of our lives, not a trick shot that has very poor odds of you making it. And why is this important this morning? Because as we read the scene set up, these small little details were given in the text about what happened to King Ahasuerus. There's going to be a temptation to call some of these chance or coincidence, and yet nothing could be further from the truth. Chance and coincidence, luck, those are the words of an atheist that doesn't see the hand of God that guides those moments. It is a way of giving credit to something out there, but not to the God who rightfully deserves it. And this morning, as we dive into God's word, we want to give credit where credit is due. To the Lord, the one who is working all of this out for his people, the one who has a plan with each and every one of these moments. It's not chance. And the first detail we're given in chapter 6 is as the king went to sleep that night, he could not sleep. He couldn't sleep. You know, sometimes God uses the most mundane things to bring about the most miraculous things. Sometimes God uses these moments that seem so insignificant And yet, they're bringing about something so supernatural. And in this moment, everything begins because the king went that night to his room, got into his comfy bed, went under the covers, and just couldn't sleep. God's hand of providence was working in this moment. 
You say, Lucas, this is such a small, insignificant detail. He just can't sleep. I have that happen all the time. It's just because I was on my screen too much, or I'm, tomorrow's details are running through my mind. It's not the Lord, and yet these, these tiny moments we're going to see is God working out a beautiful plan. God didn't get the attention of this king in a dream, like with Nebuchadnezzar. He didn't put the writing on the wall, like with Belshazzar. He didn't use a prophet to directly speak to him, like Nathan with David. No, he used a sleepless night to get the attention of this king and to begin to move into motion his plan. This king, Ahasuerus, sleepless in Shushan. Psalm 127 verse 2 tells us that it is vain for you to rise up early, to sit up late, to eat the bread of sorrows, for so he gives his beloved sleep. The opposite is equally true, though. He can also give a lack of sleep. Can you think of times when maybe a a man of God was awakened to say, "What, what was that? only to finally realize the Lord's trying to speak to me. Well, in this moment, as the king cannot sleep and he's restless in his bed, he decides to do something to try and help him rest. He commands to bring the book of the records of the chronicles, and they were read before the king. Now, this should stand out once again as an important detail for you to note of all the ways for the king to pass the time and try and calm his mind. And we've seen the track record of King Xerxes or Ahasuerus. He's a man who likes to party. He's a man who always is trying to fill himself with every indulgence he can. A man who wants a whole slew of women to be brought that he can choose from for his next wife to find the most beautiful. But he doesn't call for his wife. He doesn't call for more alcohol to be poured for him to drink He doesn't call for a musician to play something to lull him to sleep. He chooses a book. Let's remember that this is a king who loves to party, but this isn't a king that's especially noted for his intellect and for his pursuit of all things knowledge, philosophy, culture. No, he... He just wants to enjoy the moment and experience pleasure, and yet in this moment he calls for a book. Now, maybe that's very strategic of him. Maybe that's the very reason he did it, because he wants to fall asleep. So he's saying, don't bring me the things I like. Bring me a book. If anything will put me to sleep, bring me a book. And this is a pro tip for all of you Christians that can't sleep. You just go to the book of Chronicles before you... No, I'm just kidding. We're just playing. But even the detail of which book he chooses to have read to him. It's a history book that tells the details of the kingdom. And there's a lot of details that are written down. But it's the right book and the right section at the right time, at the right moment that is read to King Ahasuerus. God has his hand on this situation and has a plan in all of this. And as it's being read to him, and you'd think, surely he's falling asleep. He's dozing off. He's yawning by now and rubbing his eyes. No, 
he hears the story told once again of Mordecai and the act he did in exposing these two men who were going to try and assassinate the king. And he brings him to this moment and causes this to stir him further awake and calls him to action. Proverbs 16.9 tells us that a man's heart plans his ways, but it is the Lord that directs his steps. And in this moment, I'm sure that as the king calls for this book and lays in his bed, he's doing so for the pursuit of rest. He's doing so for the pursuit of sleep. He's not doing so because he's like, I want you to stir up some old stuff that I forgot about so I can get working on it. And yet in this moment... God directs these steps that are taken. He stirs him awake even more and calls him into action to stop the man reading. He doesn't put it off for tomorrow and say, oh, if I remember in the morning, I should look into that. Right away, he stops and says, wait a minute, what's been done for that man? Was anything done for that guy? He saved my life. What honor or dignity has been bestowed on him? It was customary to honor those who showed honor to the king. This was intentional. It helped build loyalty and trust among his people. You didn't want to be a king that was found not rewarding the people that are protecting you, or less and less people are going to be protecting you. And what's beautiful in this is that Mordecai in this moment has no idea what's taking place. And most scholars believe there's years that have passed since the act of him saving the king's life to this moment when he's finally going to get recognition and honor for it. May we never be a people that mistake God's delay for God's denial. Now, King Ahasuerus has completely forgotten that this took place. It takes being read it a second time for him to be reminded, oh yeah, I kind of dropped the ball on that. Did we do anything for that guy? But God has had a plan in this the whole time. It wasn't forgotten about. It wasn't overlooked by him. He has seen, he has remembered, and he is bringing it back to the king's attention in this moment. And in this moment, the king feels called to action and says, I need to do something about this right now. I need to right this wrong. And so he asks the question, who's in the court? All right, who's here that I can put in motion to go and get this done? Not only did God keep this king awake, not only did he give him a desire for a book, a specific book that was read in a specific place that brought him to this realization and calls him to this action, but then fills him with this zeal to right that wrong and moves him to call for the question of who's in the court that can answer this call in this moment, and who do we find who's approaching the king with his own plans in mind but Haman? Proverbs 21.1 tells us that the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. Like the rivers of water, he turns it wherever he wishes. And this is a king that's done a lot of wicked things in our text. Throughout his life was a man known for his temper, his wickedness, and his cruelty. And yet, in this moment, it's like we're reading about a completely different king 
who's just moved to try and do this right act to, wrong, to right a wrong and, and to honor this man who's been overlooked and won't even sleep without finding a way to put it into action. And so he asks his men, who's in the court? Who can I bring to my, my uh, presence and send out with a mission to write this and honor Mordecai? And as the Lord would so have fit, here comes Haman with this great plot of his to request before the king that very same man, Mordecai, to be hung on the gallows before their next banquet. Well, Haman is brought into him. And Haman, I'm sure, is thinking, oh, this is working out perfectly. I walk right into the court and the king's looking for me. Of course he is, because who else is more honored in here than me? And he's brought before the king. And the king said, what shall be done for the man whom the king delights to honor? Even within this, I see the Lord's hand at work. It's, it's descriptive enough that Haman is given some details that makes him think it's him. But it's not so descriptive that he's realizing, oh no, he's talking about someone else. So he says, what should be done for this man? The king seeks a solution in Haman. And all Haman hears is an opportunity to honor himself. It's funny because we don't even see the king specifically say, I need Haman. I need to give this job to Haman. He just asks, who's in the court? Now Haman's there, all right, bring him in. And Haman's like, oh, he called me by name. He's bringing me in. Now he's asking, what should I do for the man that I honor above all else? And he's thinking, oh, let me tell you, king. We read, Haman thought in his heart. Well, who, who would the king more delight to honor than me? I mean, the queen has specifically requested me to join her in these banquets. Clearly, the king wants to honor me above and beyond what he's already done. There's nobody else the king could possibly desire to honor as much as me. Such blindness comes when our eyes are only on ourselves. And we can look at Haman and we can chuckle and we can point the finger and say, ah, oh, the foolishness of this man, the blindness of this man. And yet, man, how many times have you and I found ourselves in a similar situation? Thinking, well, surely the Lord's gonna use me. Surely God's calling me to this. And of all the people in the world, oh, there's no one God delights to honor more than me. And yet in our blindness, we're only setting ourselves up for our own shame. Because Haman thought in his heart, who would the king delight to honor more than me? We do well to remember Jeremiah 17, 9, that says of the heart, it is deceitfully above all things and desperately wicked who can know it? You'll remember a few chapters back, the moment that it pleased the king within his heart to have all these women sought and brought to him so he could choose a bride. That it, it pleased Haman, this whole plot that his wife and his friends came up with to have Mordecai killed before their next banquet. And in this moment, it Within his heart, he's thinking, surely the king only wants to honor me and nobody else. 
realize the danger that happens when we're led by our own desires. When we just seek what's within us and not who's above us. When we just ask, what do I feel like doing? What would please me in this moment? And we're called to walk in the Spirit, and we will not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. But here in our text, we see a man who's just walking in his flesh, and it's going to lead him to corruption. And so Haman in this moment thinks that he's just been given a blank check. I mean, the the king has said, just name it, and it's yours. How do you want to be honored? And he's warming up his hands like, oh, I've been waiting for this moment. Let me tell you, king, let me set the stage First, I think we need one of your robes, one that you've worn. And I think we need, a, we need a robe that guy. Secondly, let's take a horse that you've ridden. You need to place that guy up in a, a place of authority. Lift him up. You can't just walk him through the street. He needs to ride on a royal horse. And there needs to be a crest, a crown upon the head. And not only that, take one of the most authoritative men you have, one of your royal princes or someone, yeah, and and have them lead him and have them boldly proclaim that this is what the king desires to do to those he honors so that everyone in the city will know, man, that's the guy that the king honors. That's the guy that's in authority. Man, even within This whole description of what Haman lays out, you see his heart, don't you? You see what he's living for. You see what he's craving more than anything. It's just the praise and attention. It's the applause of man. We saw this last week when he he brings his friends and his wife before him so he can just talk about all the stuff he has, all his riches, all his power. And yet even then it wasn't enough because of one man, Mordecai, who stood at the king's gate, who didn't honor him. And even here in a moment when the king says, what would you have? It's still, it's it's never enough. He needs more and more and more. He wants it all. He's a man who lives and dies by the opinions of others. A man, as we mentioned last week, whose ego continues to grow, and as it grows, becomes more fragile to the point it's going to burst. And then we read the king's instructions to him. When he's laid out his list, when he has put it all out there and said, oh, there it is, on a silver platter, king, that's what I want. And the king says, hurry, hurry. Take the robe and the horse as you have suggested and do so for Mordecai the Jew who sits within the king's gate. Leave nothing undone of all that you have spoken. There it is, folks, the law of the Lord in full effect. The man who all the way up to this point seems to be continually lifted up, the ball is just dropped And the man who up to this point has seemingly been unnoticed, unappreciated, walked in a place of humility, has just been lifted up. Oh, to be a fly on the wall of that room when Haman received that instruction. I just want to be able to see his reaction in that moment as he is just mortified by that detail. Do all this for Mordecai the Jew who sits in the gate. And I'm sure he's just cringing at every word he hears. 
And then the king even gives that detail, leave none of this undone. You're not going to get away with saying, ah, oh, forget the horse. You know what? We'll just grab a robe in the back closet. We don't need... No, don't leave any of it undone. Everything that you wanted for yourself, now the man you despise more than anyone is going to get all of that. And you're going to be the one to parade him through the city and proclaim these words over him. Don't tell me God doesn't have a sense of humor. Oh, man. And so Haman, under the authority of the king, is required to go and do so. And I would also love to see the reaction of Mordecai in that moment. Right? As as Haman's coming towards you, and you know how this man feels about you, and he walks up to you and places a robe on you, and then lifts you up on this horse, and then begins to lead you through the town proclaiming these words, I've got to believe the guy's laughing. I mean, how could you not? The man who hates you so much is leading you and proclaiming these things, and I'm sure he's grumbling while he's doing so. And you're just smiling like, what is going on? But after he's finished parading him through the city, and he brings him back, I love the detail we read here. Afterward, in verse 12, Mordecai went back to the king's gate, but Haman hurried to his house, mourning and with his head covered. Mordecai just goes back to the king's gate. He gets off of that horse, he takes off the robe, and then he goes immediately back to his job, back to his duty, back to his, his location. We don't see him like Haman saying, I need to gather all my friends and family and just tell them all the ways I've been honored today and all the things that have been done for me today. We just read, he just goes right back to the king's gate. We're not given one word. We're not given one emotion. We're not giving any description of Mordecai. And I see something really important to distinguish between these two men is that one of them is living by a godly character, and one is living by a reputation that he's been given by men. People motivated by a godly character, they live with one reality in mind, and that's that God sees. God sees everything I do. Whether it's on a horse before all the people, or it's just in the king's gate doing my work. But people motivated by their reputation to be seen and appreciated and honored by men, live with a very different priority. And it's to be noticed and acknowledged by others. Now, this doesn't negate the fact that a good name is to be desired among us. That we should have a good reputation, especially as a follower of Christ. Scripture speaks clearly to it. However, this should never be your ultimate aim. What kind of name am I making for myself? How do people feel and see me and treat me? It should be stemming from a, a godly character that is grounded in our understanding of our favor before him. Let me ask you this morning, though, what drives you? Where does your motivation come from for the things you do? Do you work, live, think, and talk 
for an audience of one God who sees all and knows all, even the thoughts and intents of us? Or does our private life behind closed doors drastically differ from our public life around others? Do you work harder when the boss is around than you do when he's gone? Do you put your hands up and sing louder in church than you do on your own? Do you do something not because you have a desire to or because you have a calling to, but just because doing so is going to bring the attention of those around you and is going to paint you in a positive light before them? Here's a great way to challenge what your motivation is. Does it bother you when someone else gets the credit for something you've done? How does that sit with you when another is praised for your acts? Because if it's done for an audience of one, he sees and he knows. But if it's been done for others, that doesn't sit too well with us. Another great way that we are challenged, probably one that exposes this more than others, is how do you respond when people exalt you and praise you? Because for Haman, this was everything. But for Mordecai, we don't even see him flinch. I wonder, can you truly celebrate and honor victories in another's life? Or does it just feel like a threat to you and your own? standing. Mordecai went straight from that horse. He took off that crown and robe and he walked back to the post of the gate. The praise of man didn't morph Mordecai into something different because the praise of man didn't make Mordecai who he was in the first place. Haman hurries away mourning with his head covered because it was his reputation and power that defined him, and now the loss of those things will destroy him. I wonder what makes you and breaks you today? What would qualify your day as a day worth living that was victorious, that was right before the Lord? Does it need the praise of man? Does it need the attention of others? Or are you living and moving and breathing and acting for an audience of one? May it be the favor of God alone whom you will stand before one day. The God who has power to destroy both body and soul in hell, yet also the God who has made a way of escape for those who trust in Jesus and has given us a greater title than we could ever earn or deserve as children of God and co-heirs with Christ. And may his words and favor over us be more than enough so that we don't need the praise of men to understand our value and our identity and our purpose. You've been made in the image of God. But if you allow the words of men to make you, it will be the words of men that break you. But when you allow the words of God to define you, the words of men can't touch you. 
So Mordecai can be praised and walked through the town, or he can be unnoticed for years at a time for righteous acts that he has done. It doesn't change who he is in the eyes of God. And maybe today some of you have been struggling with that because you feel like you've served in your marriage or in your church or in your community or at your job and you've gone unnoticed for years. I work harder, I work longer, I give everything I have to this marriage or this job or this place and I don't get a single thanks for it. Who are you doing it for? Oh, that it would be done for the Lord as a response to what's been done for you. And then every day you could go to bed at night with a smile on your face because all that I have done and all the ways I have poured myself out, they still don't compare to all that God has done for me. I'm still the one that's coming out ahead in this deal. And God sees and God knows that everything that I do, I'm going to work heartily unto the Lord and not for the praise and attention and recognition of men. Haman goes away, much like the scene we saw of Mordecai chapters earlier when he heard of this decree to kill the Jews. Haman goes away mourning with his head covered, and he goes to his wife and his friends The same people that the day before had told him, we've got this great plan for you. Here's how you're going to kill Mordecai and then you're going to go to that banquet with a smile on your face and joy in your heart. And here he comes crying to them. And they say to him, if Mordecai before whom you have begun to fall is of Jewish descent, you will not prevail against him but will surely fall before him. The same friends that offered terrible A terrible solution, the chapter before, have terrible news for him now. And the people that, when he's making unwise decisions in his anger, just feed it and say, yeah, do it, be more extreme, are now the people that when he's discouraged and he's overwhelmed and he's feeling condemned and he just wants to give up and he doesn't know what to do, they're like, yep, you're in trouble. Yeah, I'm real glad I'm not you right now. This is not looking good, Haman. They just got no, no encouragement for him. They see the honor that's just been given to Mordecai, the recognition by the king that was brought to him, and they know full well what will happen to the man that is found conspiring against the most honored servant of the king, the man who just set up a gallows To have this man hung on, they're like, yeah, man, uh, doesn't look good. Don't know how to tell you this, but you're in big trouble. Yeah, yeah, no, we, yeah, that's all we got. And while they're still talking with him and giving him this great boost of confidence, the king's eunuchs come and they hasten to bring Haman to the banquet which Esther had prepared. And for this man, that things have already gone terribly, they're only going to get worse. This is the beginning of the fall of Haman. In a moment when his friends and wife are sharing the hopelessness of his future and just filling his heart with dread and further discouragement, they're interrupted by these servants saying, hey, time to go. 
Come on, Haman. We got to go before the king. They're like, good luck. And as we'll see next week, this will be the last meal of Haman before his execution. Oh, how the mighty have fallen, even if they were only ever mighty in their own eyes. Never underestimate how God can lift up his beloved in a moment. And never underestimate how he can bring down the enemies of his kingdom in a night. Because if Esther stopped at chapter 5, we'd be scratching our heads wondering how could God possibly turn this around and where is God in the midst of everything going on and all it takes is chapter 6 for us to say, oh, there it is. Yep, that's the law of the Lord. Man, God was in control the whole time. Ah, he knew what he was doing. It's almost like he works all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Crazy, huh? Or the famous idiom of Jeff Roberts that You're telling me it it all happened exactly how it's supposed to? Man, if you've ever been on a missions trip with that guy, you haven't gone more than an hour without hearing that phrase. And the number of times that Jeff and I have been able to sit there, especially in Africa, in the bush, and just chuckle and go, wow, it's almost like that worked out exactly how it was supposed to. That we got to the right person at the right time with the right conversation and interaction and God was working this thing out far before we got there. And So may we not grow weary while doing good. Knowing that in due season, man, God's going to work it out. So we continue to work by faith and not by sight. And we find strength in sections like this to see a man so high brought so low and a man that seemed unseen now in this place of recognition and honor. But the sad conclusion that we have to close with this morning is that Haman's sad story is the sad future for anyone and everyone outside of Christ. No matter how high the world might lift one up, in the end they will be brought low before the king of kings where every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. And it doesn't matter their reputation. It doesn't matter their power. It doesn't matter how many riches they've had in this life and how long their legacy lives on. Everyone is brought low before the king of kings. Those who think their future is in control, in their control, and in their power, that their riches can protect them from anything that would be done to them, would do wise to learn from Haman's example. Because likewise, we will one day be summoned into the presence of the king. And just as he was hastened to quickly come, you're not going to get to delay that day. And when the Lord calls you before his presence, you will go whether you like it or not, even if it's kicking and screaming. And there'll be no delaying it. There'll be no avoiding it. And when you stand before that king or kneel, rather, what's been done has been done. There's no excuse that is good enough. There is no pleading desperately enough that can undo the eternal decision you've made prior to that moment.
And in that moment, it's just the final decree of the king coming in alignment with the decision you've made your entire life to either accept him as your Lord and Savior or reject him, and he will say, go from me. Depart from me. I never knew you. For Haman next week, as he is brought into the presence of the king, that's how that interaction is going to end. With Haman being cast out of the presence of the king, never to be seen again. One goes to the king and enjoys life abundant and eternal with pleasures of the kingdom forevermore. The other cast out of his presence for coming against his beloved bride and his servant. You know, for the king in Esther, coming against Esther was worthy of death, worthy of execution. And for the king of kings and lord of lords, coming against his bride, the church, and denying his own son, Jesus, will result in the very same consequence. And so as I invite the worship team to come back up, as we respond this morning in worship, proclaiming that good king that has saved us and spared us of that reality because of what he did for us, I need to ask the question, have you given your life to Jesus? Have you surrendered to the King of Kings? Because each and every one of us in this room is going to be hastened into his presence at one moment. And it doesn't matter what has been done or undone besides one thing. Have you given your life to Jesus? Has you received him as your Lord and Savior? Is his payment covering your sins? Because if you don't know Jesus, the Father won't know you. And this morning I want to ask, is there anybody that needs to raise their hand this morning, that needs to make the decision this morning to say, I need to give my life to Jesus. I recognize that that day is coming, and I also recognize myself in the position of Haman and not Esther or Mordecai. If I stood before the Lord today, I would not be accepted. I would not be welcomed as his child. I would be cast out from his presence. You have an opportunity this morning to change that. You have an opportunity this morning, and even if you've made a thousand wrong decisions, you can make a right one this morning. It covers all of that. And where sin has abounded in your life, grace could abound so much more. And where sin and shame has marked your life, the blood of Jesus could wash you white as snow, and you can be clean, you can be accepted, you can be right with God this morning before you ever leave this building because of the finished work of Jesus on the cross for your sins, for my sins. Is there anyone this morning that needs to make that decision? Well then, brothers and sisters, I trust that we are standing here, sitting here today, 
in the presence of the family of God. People that understand full well that gift of eternal life that was given at the sacrifice of Jesus for us. As we close this morning by entering into a time of worship and prayer, and I want to encourage you this morning to respond to what's been done for you. To worship the Lord and sing in a way that is worthy of the sacrifice that was made for your salvation. To truly sing out and celebrate and proclaim the King of kings and Lord of lords who has saved us and redeemed us and given us a hope and a future in him. This is not something we should remain silent about. But I also want to challenge you to be open to receiving prayer for whatever the Lord may put on your heart. There's going to be people available all throughout the room to pray with you. Some in the back, some in the front. And my challenge to you is to be, to be open to what the Lord might put on your heart and to respond likewise by coming and, and receiving prayer and praying with someone. Maybe it's something this morning in the message that the Holy Spirit challenged you with and you know you need to respond to. Man, that starts right here in prayer. Maybe it's something completely separate from this morning and something that's weighing heavily on your heart that you know you're going to have to go out there today and face. And come and receive prayer. This is a beautiful gift we've been given that we can enter into the presence of God and bring our requests before him. Don't neglect that gift this morning as the Lord would lead you to do so. Let's pray. Lord, we recognize in our text this morning our desire to be like Mordecai and also our tendency so often to be like Haman. It brings to the forefront of our minds that reality that each and every day is a decision. To die to ourselves, to deny ourselves and take up our cross and follow you. To live from a motivation that is to live a life glorifying to you and not just one for the praise of men. God, I pray that you would continue to mold and shapen each and every man, woman, and child here today into your image. Lord, that you would sharpen us. Lord, that you would refine us. God, that you would reveal to us, even in this moment, those areas of our life that we've been living for the wrong thing. Those areas in our life that we're bitter and we're resentful, we're angry, Lord, and it's for wrong reasons. Lord, we live for you. God, I pray your spirit would move in this moment and reveal where there are areas in our life we need to respond to this morning and pray about. God, that our praise and worship this morning would be worthy of the salvation that is ours in Jesus. That it would be a sweet-smelling aroma to you. 
that we would sing out and cry out to a God who is worthy of all our praise. The one who exalts one and brings low another. And it's in your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen.